It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. The hot stove is, insert your hot stove pun here, but it, it truly is extraordinarily hot right now. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the deals going down and in particular how they uh, affect teams' draft picks. And there have been a couple of trades involving prospects, the trade of Adam Frazier, the trade of Jacob Stallings, both involving prospects. We'll talk about the young players involved in those deals. We'll take another trip through the Arizona Fall League and look at our ranking of the top prospects in the Development League this year and look at some breakout prospects as well. And then we'll wrap up, as we always do, with a question in the mailbag. Guys, can I get some help on uh, hot stove puns? You got any? Scalding. Scalding right (laughs) now. Sure, if you can't handle the heat get out of the kitchen there we go yeah i mean there are some enormous deals going down uh cory seager to the rangers 10 years 325 million dollars uh max scherzer of course uh what was it a, zil- a zillion or a trillion dollars a year on that <laughs> no, one three what, what, what was that three years 130 million 130 million dollars uh, Robbie Ray, five years, $115 million, uh, just some enormous, enormous deals. And, um, like I said, some trades involving prospects as well. Um, let's start off with those trades. The first one we had, uh, I believe I got this right chronologically. We had Adam Frazier dealt from the Padres to the Mariners. For a couple of interesting guys, um, now, neither one of these guys were on the top 30 list at the time. Uh, left-handed pitcher Ray Kerr, outfielder Corey Rozier, um, were not on the Mariners' top 30 list, but Ray Kerr goes on the Padres' list at number 26. Uh, Corey Rozier not on the top 30 prospects list, but I know uh, he is a guy who had a really nice debut. Um, and I think both of these guys were recently on a, a couple of lists that we did. Rosier was on our, in our story where we looked at one, uh, draftee who had a big debut and then Jim wasn't Ray Kerr on a, on a list that I want to say yeah, it was on a list that you did. I, I think the Padres are clearly reading my stories because <laughs> Corey Rosier was on my red hot debut list from the draft. And then Ray Kerr was on my intriguing guys added to 40 man rosters who weren't ranked on top 30. So um, I think that, I think the, the, you know, we know the Padres shook up their scouting department and apparently I think the pro scouting department is, is MLB pipeline right now. That appears to be the uh, what's going on, but yeah, both those guys are super interesting. I, I thought Ray Kerr, I did not rank the unranked prospects added to 40 man rosters, but I thought Ray Kerr, 
was the most intriguing player of the ones I mentioned. I mean, this is a guy who was undrafted out of Lassen California Junior College. He was signed for $5,000 as an undrafted free agent. We saw him. He was in the Fall League, I think, a couple years ago. I didn't remember seeing him when I noticed that. But all of a sudden this year, he's hitting 100 miles an hour with his fastball. He's got a low 80s slider that could be a wipeout pitch when it's on. He um, had a 318 ERA in double and triple A. Opponents hit 184 off of him and struck out 60 times in 39 and two-thirds innings. So um, I suspect we'll see him in San Diego at some point this year. And then, you know, Rozier, obviously, it's a different timetable. But he was a 12th-round pick out of UNC Greensboro, which is in my neck of the draft. And, um, you know, he was one of the better mid-major players in, in, in my neck of the draft. He, he ranked among the Southern Conference leaders in, in just about every category during the spring. Um, and then in his debut, he hit 380. Um, he led all, all players who were drafted this year um, with that average. He led them in ops at, at 10-22. He stole 13 bases in 32 games. And he's a, he's a contact-oriented bat who's got plus speed and plays a solid center field. Um, so I thought two pretty interesting guys there. I think it's kind of interesting. You look at you know Adam Frazier in the span of four months get traded for four well five minor leaguers. Uh, you know Jack Sawinski uh, and uh, you know Tukapita Marcano was you know pretty high up on the Pirates list. Sawinski's down near the end, um, but uh, and then 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 these two. Um, you know, I think the Padres did well. You know, they they gave up a decent amount to to get Frazier for you know for the playoff run, and you know, he didn't he didn't perform all that well. Um, you know, I think he he was kind of hitting above his head with the the Pirates at the time of the trade. But you know, he he is a guy who I guess still has value to to bring in some some really in, intriguing guys, even if they're not those sort of high end you know kind of prospects. Jim. My neck of the draft, I think, is probably a phrase that not many people have uttered. <laughs> we're, we're breaking ground here on, on the MLB Pipeline podcast. Ex- explain, new, explain for the listener just exactly what that means. Well, I was, I was obviously, you know, my neck of the woods, but I was applying it to the draft. But Jonathan and I split up the country for the draft. I've got, you know, basically Texas all the way up to North Dakota, that, that kind of straight line. And then I've got the Southeast minus Florida. I've got Georgia and uh, the Carolinas along the Atlantic coast. And then I've got kind of the Midwest Big Ten Conference states over to Ohio. And so Jonathan has the Northeast, Florida, and the West. So I think we should, uh, you know, like uh, like the, the nation, we should have redistricting. I was going to say. The census. Has, has that changed since you guys have been working on the draft together or have you had the same regions throughout? No, I don't even know. It's, no, it's changed slightly. Cause Never? when I first, no, no, we, we have changed it. Cause when I first got here, Teddy Cahill had Georgia and Florida. Um, oh. And then we re, we redistributed it and I took Georgia, you took Florida and you had Tennessee initially. And I wound up getting Tennessee because I think a lot of my area guys, rather than split, a lot of my guys had Tennessee as part of their area. So I wound up getting Tennessee. So it's it's changed a little bit, but we haven't um, we haven't done a major redistrict redistrict 
can't even speak, redistricting. It, it, it's like most, of, I think outside of maybe, Jonathan, the, you have Virginia and I have the Carolinas. Most of our states are encompassed in like one area scouts area rather than splitting areas up. Right. And I mean, and one of the things that gets sort of, you know, not complicated, but, you know, it's, you know, teams divvy the country up in, in much different ways. So, yeah, there are a lot of scouts who have, say, Virginia, North Carolina. Um, so there are times where uh, I'll talk to a guy and I'll be like, oh, he also has North Carolina and I'll pass along names and and and, and vice versa. You know, there's a, a scout that both of us like to to talk to quite a bit who, you know, Georgia is his, is his main deal, but he also has the panhandle in Florida. So we both end up uh, talking to him or, or pass names back and back and forth. But, uh, it, you know, different different teams do sort of split things up a little bit differently. So sometimes it's uh, it, it can get a little confusing. Um, that happens to me more probably with just within my own California is so huge. Um, I still don't, you know, there are guys I've been talking to for a number of years and I still don't totally understand where their area ends and begins because it depends on the organization and how they, how they split up, uh, split up the state. Yeah. For when I do my Texas prep with my, my, my follow list for the high school guys, I put an N and an S for North Texas, South Texas. So I can remember which scouts to ask about which guys. Yeah, North, North. I mean, it, it, you know, Northern California. At least that that's a little bit easier. It's the center of the state that it's. Yeah. it's those lines are very blurry. It's a big state. I wonder who has more electoral votes in in their their neck of the draft, Jonathan. Hmm. Because you have a, California, I, I, I have California and New, and New York, York and Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania. I think I do. You probably do. That's a uh, that's a look at how the sausage is made, or yes. in this case, the- next week's podcast will break down the electoral votes uh, of each <laughs> if, if each of our next of the draft. I do think that maybe by next week we'll start talking a little bit about the uh, upcoming top one hundred draft prospects list. It won't Good quite tease. be won't quite be out yet, but yeah, we're kind of teasing the tease at this <laughs> point. All right, so let's get back to. Uh, Traded prospects. Another deal. Uh, Jacob Stallings, Gold Glove catcher, goes from the Pirates to the Marlins for right-hander Zach Thompson, uh, right-handed prospect Kyle Nicholas, uh, and outfielder Connor Scott. And uh, <clears throat> I think you know this deal has uh, some interest for uh, you, Jonathan, outside of just the prospect slant because you are there in Pittsburgh or usually are. <laughs> um, well, let's, let's look at, uh, first of all, the prospects involved in this deal and Kyle Nicholas and Connor Scott. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting, you know, trying to figure out what the pirates are, are doing here, but um, Nicholas is a guy who, I, I, you know, if I had to guess, I think he probably ends up in the bullpen, but, uh, the, the stuff is, is ridiculous. You know, we're talking a guy who can touch a hundred miles an hour in, in shorter stints, uh, sits mid nineties and, and can maintain it, which is why you don't give up on him being a starter. Um, and he's only 22. So like, I, I don't, he was a 2020 draftee. So it's not like you pull the plug just yet. Uh, he, he's got a really good slider, um, can miss bats with it. Uh, he'll show a curveball, uh, the changeup, you know, he's working on. 
the strike throwing is the biggest question. Now he had a huge improvement in his last year of, of college, um, but at, at ball state, but he was about 4.5 per nine in his first pro season, which was better than his first two years. He, he walked seven and a half, more than seven and a half per nine innings in his first two years of college. So there's a lot to like here. There's a lot to work with. I think it's just a question of what is he? Um, you know, so I think that, uh, you know, but the stuff wise is why he landed, you know, at 24 on the, on the pirates ranking, I, I didn't put Connor Scott on and that's more, I think, uh, a sign of the depth of the, of the pirates system right now. Um, and I'll, and I'll kind of revisit that when we do, you know, our full on re-ranking for 2022. Um, you know, it was, high first rounder, um, which, you know, was a little surprising. I'm sure Jim will weigh in, uh, on, on, on his thoughts of Scott, you know, so it's interesting. So Connor Scott, it was in from Florida is from plant high school in Tampa. That's, you know, where, uh, Pete Alonzo, Kyle Tucker, among others, Wade Boggs went there. Um, you know, so he was my, my, my neck of the draft. Um, trying to get used to using that. I think we should trademark that. Uh, but, you know, Jim does the Marlins. So, you know, I haven't really thought of him. I know he, he, you know, he had struggled kind of out of the gate over his first two, you know, summer and first full season last year. Uh, this past year was better. Um, there, you know, there's some tools there, you know, he makes good contact. He can run, he can throw, uh, you know, I think if it all clicks, he's a 2020 guy. Most people see him more as a fourth outfielder, but, I think there, you know, there are some tools there for him to tap into, um, but he hasn't, you know, he hasn't really started driving the ball. It's gotten a little bit better, uh, but I think he slugged, but I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but about 440, something like that uh, this this past season. So, you know, it's some improvement. He was in high A and he's still young, you know, so uh, we can you know sort of see what happens. I think this will be a big year. 2022 could be a big year in terms of really figuring out. He'll move to double A, and I think we'll get a better sense of, well, is he going to take another step forward in his development, or is he going to be sort of that tweener, fourth outfielder type? Yeah, I think you broke those guys down well, Jonathan. I mean, I think this is just a case of a, of a team, you know, the Pirates, who aren't really going to contend – um, you know, selling high on Jacob Stallings. Uh, you know, I think Stallings is a really good receiver. I think he handles the pitching staff really well. He's an okay hitter, but he's also 31. You know, I mean, you know, you know, won a gold glove, but catchers usually, you know, aren't productive well into their 30s. So I think it's a case where if the Pirates are looking at it realistically, you know, they appreciate what Jacob Stallings brought to table and had a really nice 2021. But now you have to start paying him in arbitration. He's arbitration eligible. Is he going to be at the height of his powers when they're ready to win again, which might be at least a couple of years away? Probably not. So I think it makes sense to, to go ahead and, and trade him now and, yeah. you know, and see what you like. You know, you didn't get a top 100 prospect, but like you pointed out, I mean, they got two interesting prospects. You know, maybe they're a reliever and a, and a fourth outfielder. But, I, you know, I think they both have big league potential. And, and Zach Thompson's a guy who, you know, we were talking a little bit before we got on the air. I've always, I always kind of liked Zach Thompson a little bit when he was in the White Sox system. I saw him good in the fall league. I think you were saying, Jonathan, you didn't see him as good as I guess I did in the fall league that, went, that when he was out there 
about three years ago, I think. But, um, you know, the Marlins signed him as a minor league free agent. Um, I always thought, you know, I saw him as more of like a seventh inning reliever, to be honest with you. And this year he was actually pretty effective for them as a starter. And, and he's got, you know, less than a year, a full year's worth of service time. So he's like, you know, low cost rotation piece for the Pirates for the next couple of years. Yeah, so I, no, I agree. I, I don't think this one's going to, you know, change the 2022 pennant race by any means. But I, I can see what both teams are getting at here. Yeah, I think for the Marlins, yeah, they have so much young pitching. Um, adding adding a guy like Stallings will, will help them. And from the Pirates said, yeah, I, I agree with you. They, they'll get the immediate return from from Thompson, who just lost feel for his breaking ball late, you know, a little bit. You know, when I saw him, he still showed some very good stuff. But uh, command wise, I think he just was having trouble landing that his breaking stuff for strikes, which I think is part of you know a big reason why he was so effective early. Uh, he still was missing bats when I saw him, but it was a little bit more, uh, a little bit more of a struggle for him. Um, you know, it's still enough where I'd be like, oh, he's, you know, he's intriguing, good stuff, left-handed, all, all those things. You know, even if he ends up back in the bullpen eventually. All right, let's shift gears a bit. We've been talking about some trades involving prospects now. Uh, talk a little bit more about the hot stove and some free agent signings and in particular how they affect the draft. Uh, all of these players um, were given a qualifying offer, declined it, and then have gone on to uh, agree to or sign deals with other clubs resulting in a draft pick for the t- their previous team and a pick lost for the team Signing those players, Noah Syndergaard, Eduardo Rodriguez, Marcus Semyon, Corey Seager, Robbie Ray. Um, In each of those cases, except with the Dodgers and Seager, uh, the team that lost that player has uh, gained a pick after competitive balance round B. Uh, With the Dodgers, they receive a pick after the fourth round. Um, And the teams that uh, lost those lost picks uh, due to signing those players. The Rangers kind of get hit hard here, uh, having signed, uh, having deals with Simeon and Seager, uh, losing their second highest pick and then their third highest remaining pick. Um, so, you know. We're thinking second and fifth round there. Is that what that sounds like? Let's see. First, second. I think that's right, right? Third highest. Because I don't think they get a competitive balance pick. Right. right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and so at this point, the competitive balance picks have not been announced. So we're we're waiting on that before we have the full draft order, um, but we can get a kind of general idea. Um, Angels lost their second highest pick for signing Syndergaard. Uh, Tigers losing their third highest for Rodriguez, and the Mariners losing their third highest pick for the Mariners. But uh, still about, uh, what, three, six, seven, seven more uh, free agents who declined qualifying offers and have draft picks attached to them. Correa, Chris Taylor, Michael Conforto, Nick Castellanos, Trevor Story, Rafael Iglesias, and Freddie Freeman, all still to come. Yeah, the interesting thing was, was I guess, looking at this and trying to figure out who was going to gain the most picks next year. I mean, the, the Blue Jays have already gained two. Those after competitive balance round B picks, so that's after the second round. Those picks are going to be about the 75th pick in the draft, you know, somewhere in, in that territory. 
Um, so the Blue Jays look like they're going to get a couple picks. I think it's – I'm going to go ahead and go out on the limb here, guys, with all the outfielders the Mets signed, that they're probably not re-signing Michael Conforto. And if, if they don't, because they already lost Syndergaard, they'll get two picks after the – around, you know, in that 75 area. And they already get an extra pick right, for not signing Kumar Rocker, Rocker yeah. this year. So they'll pick a limb, which is also complicating the free agents they pursue a little bit because if they were to sign one of these guys, the Mets would lose their second-highest pick which would be the 11th overall pick, which they don't want to lose, which is why I think they went after Max Scherzer, who didn't require a compensation. But so it looks like the the Blue Jays and the Mets have the most to gain here. The Dodgers could gain two picks, but as you mentioned, because they're in a higher category of spending, their two picks would be after the fourth round rather than after the second round. I think I've interpreted all that correctly. You know, I think that's right. And then, you know, the, and the Dodgers, listen, uh, there's plenty of big league talent found after the fourth round. And the Dodgers have done really well with late round guys. So uh, if, if there ever was an organization that would do well with that, um, you know, I think that that would be good. And yeah, I mean, the Mets having all those extra picks uh, to add some depth to a somewhat thinned out system, uh, you know, I, I think that will serve them. Uh, that'll serve them well also. Yeah, I think and the what, Angels look like they could get the pick that they gave up to get Syndergaard. They will essentially recoup a pick, of, you know, a few spots lower if Iglesias signs with a different team. So the Mets, we think, will end up with, what, six picks in the top 100? Doing the math in my head here. Um, I'm going to, I'm just going to trust you. Number 11, number 14, right. think, second round pick, yes. and then two after competitive. Well, number 10 and 11. Uh, yes, and then uh, uh, the two competitive balance picks after competitive balance round B, and then the third round pick. Yeah, yep. that sounds right. Yeah. So it, it, a pretty, uh, that's a pretty exciting uh, little offseason there when you net uh, Max Scherzer and have – six top 100 draft picks awaiting. Yeah. Trying to cram it all in, uh, sort of on both ends of it, you know, getting the, the big layer, Jim, I think you made a good point. The fact that, uh, you know, they were able to sign a free agent that wouldn't cost them any comp, you know, wouldn't cost them anything because of the risk of, of losing that, that the compensation for not signing Kumar rocker and then adding all these picks, um, yeah, uh, I, I think you know you never want to not sign your first rounder from the year before, but uh, to be able to load up the the year after uh, is, is kind of a, a good way to to recoup those losses. Yeah, I mean the the one thing that they won't get back, and we talked about this at the time, is they moved money around. They saved money in their bonus pool to be able to pay Kumar Rocker, and then didn't have a place to spend that money when he failed the physical. So while they'll get the pick back, they kind of. Don't have the number in front. I want to say it was like 1.2 million. They, they they wasted draft capital this year that right. they don't get back. But, but yes, they will be in position to do some damage in this year's draft for sure. All right, we are going to take a break. When we come back, we'll take a trip back through the Arizona Fall League, look at our ranking of this year's top prospects there, and look at a few breakout prospects as well. That's coming up next on the MLB Pipeline Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. 
And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Jason Ratliff, Jim Callis, Jonathan Mayo. Uh, Arizona Fall League wrapped up uh, a couple weeks ago now. Uh, but we are still going through and uh, we put out a ranking of the top 25 prospects in the league. Jonathan, you did that list. Um, and I think, first of all, uh, probably would help for you to kind of explain how that list is formed. You're not saying that these are just the best uh, prospects in the league based on their future value, right? No, we, we're trying to find some kind of middle ground and there's no formula, you know, to sort of set it precisely. Uh, but it is a combination of what you said, you know, uh, prospectiness, you know, upside value, future potential, along with performance. You know, so, you know, if a guy is a well-regarded prospect and performs well, he's going to be high on the list. There are guys, you know, who, who are pretty high on the list. You look at their overall numbers and you'll be like, well, they, they weren't that good there, but you know, not, not only are they still perceived as really good prospects, but they showed certain qualities. Uh, you know, you know, I think there are some guys who either didn't make the list or down further where the performance, you know, made you say, all right, well, maybe I have to reevaluate, where they belong or, you know, what, what you think they're able to do all this with that, you know, that ever present small sample size caveat. Yeah. So the guy at the top of this list, Gabriel Moreno, the blue Jays, number one prospect, ranked number 32 on the current top 100 prospects list. And while there were uh, players ranked higher than him in the league, uh, the combination of his ranking and his performance there is what put him at the top of this list. Uh, Marco Luciano, for example, is number five overall. He's the highest ranked prospect in the league who remained there. There, uh, Of course, Spencer Torkelson uh, started out in the fall league and then uh, left with an injury. Uh, there were uh, several highly ranked prospects that didn't qualify for this. What, what did we set the qualification at? Jonathan, do you remember how many? They have to play at least two weeks. Is that what we said? I think that's what it was. And then there were a couple of times where I circled back. You know, some of the pitchers, it was tough uh, just to make sure, you know, like, well, should we should we consider this guy? Uh, because he made three or four starts, quote unquote, but only through six innings, you know, things like that. So, um, you know, there's certain of those kinds of players who, you know, we didn't even really consider uh, because of the, of the of the lack of playing time. Not surprisingly, the top eight players on the list, all hitters in the hitter-friendly league. The first pitcher to appear on the list was the Arizona Fall League Pitcher of the Year, Owen White, uh, who came in ranked uh, just 28th on the Rangers list, um, largely probably due to the fact that he just had not pitched very much at all. Uh, Rangers had to be extraordinarily happy with what they saw out of him in the fall league. He's at number nine on the list. And then number 10, Bobby Miller of the Dodgers, uh, who's number 78 on the top 100 prospects list. The uh, rest of that top 
top of this list goes like this. Number two, Nick Gonzalez of the Pirates. Number three, Brett Beatty of the Mets. Number four, Marco Luciano of the Giants. Number five, Bryson Stott of the Phillies. Number six, Tristan Casas of the Red Sox. Number seven, uh, co-hitter of the year in the Fall League, J.J. Bleday of the Marlins. Number eight, the AFL MVP, Nelson Velasquez of the Cubs. Uh, so kind of a mix here of, you know, guys who are not on the top 100 but had really good fall league seasons, guys who are on the top 100 and either didn't perform well or, or were just pretty good, and then the guys up toward the top, Gonzalez, Beatty, uh, Stott, and Casas, kind of a combination of the fact that they're on the top 100 prospect list and had pretty good to very good fall league seasons. Jonathan, you you remember what my main quibble with with the top of your list was. You were questioning Bryson Stott over Tristan Casas, if I recall. That is correct. Based on the fact that Casas is number 18 overall, Stott number 97 overall, and they had pretty similar fall leagues. But uh, you, you you gave Stott the nod over Casas there. It was just to thumb my nose at you, really. <laughs> uh, no, it, you know, some of it was I did get some feedback from pro scouts and who, who thought Stott belonged in, you know, even a little bit higher. Some of it was positional. Um, you know, Stott's a shortstop. He can play shortstop. And, you know, it, and after seeing him, you know, when, whenever we get around to doing a new top 100, uh, he will be higher. <laughs> um, I don't know how much higher. You know, I, I don't, you know, I, I think that Tristan Costas does have a chance to be like a, a tremendous offensive player. And I think Bryson Stott is, is very good. And I think he's the kind of player you like more, the more you see him. Um, you know, I, I was at, in the fall league at the very end, you know, guys are starting to get tired and he played a, a full season. Um, and he just kept swinging the bat and making a lot of hard contact. And that combined with the, 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 the defensive ability is, is why I, I gave him a nod, but, you know, if someone else had done this list and had flipped them, I, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be horrifically upset. I don't think there was all that much separating. Uh, actually, I think a lot of the guys sort of at the top of this list were somewhat interchangeable outside of Moreno, who you kind of went in and Jim, I remember you sort of, when we started out and, you know, I had all different people who covered the fall league send me their ideas of what, you know, a top 20 should look like. And Jim started out, I think the first thing you said was like, well, all I know without even looking is that Gabriel Moreno was the best prospect. And uh, that was pretty universal, both from us and from the the scouts that I, that I talked to, just because he was so good on both sides of the ball. And I even put in the story, just, you know, I saw him start a game at third and he looked like he could, he could play third base easily. Uh, not that that raises his profile, like, that greatly but he, he's just he's just a really really good player at a at a position you know where there are a lot of demands and you know he looks ready for the upper levels and probably the big leagues in the not too distant future yeah i didn't get to see him at thirds but it sounds like that went better than when i don't know if did you get to see francisco mejia uh, at i did days? that did not go well um yeah, and the difference and i'll let you finish up you know yeah. that they were really trying to turn Mejia into a third baseman potentially to figure out how to get his right you know, his bat in the life. This was just sort of like, well, let's get him some more at bats. And he, you know, he played a few games at third, you know, so he just, I think he enjoys being out there. Um, it just sort of pointed to his athleticism more uh, than a, a potential position change. 
No, I mean, we talked, I mean, that's why nobody took him in the total base pool that we did, the, the Jason one that we talked about last week, is that, you know, most teams have three catchers on the roster and they each play like twice a week usually. And so, you know, getting him more bats was good. But yeah, when I was out there, just the scouts I talked to, I mean, everybody brought him up as the best prospect in the league. I, I think he, you know, he's number 32 in our top 100. I think he'd rank higher on our list had he not been hurt this year because he was hitting, what was it, like 370 or 380 in AA when he got hurt in June. And I think if he had a full season, he would have put up a monster minor league season. Um, what I liked about what I liked about him in the fall league, uh, you know, I mean, there was a lot to like, but like the thing that stood out to me was just the approach. You know, he wasn't. I mean, it was an offensive league, but he wasn't swinging for the fences. I think he hit eleven doubles in twenty two games. Um, he was just driving the ball gap to gap, making a lot of contact. You know, drawing some walks. You know, receiving was fine behind the plate. Everybody was running wild in the league, but not on him. He threw out almost half the runners who tested him. I mean, he looked, like you said, Jonathan, he looked good on both sides of the ball. And and, and that was my comment to you. I mean, you, you were doing the list. I mean, whatever you came up with would have been fine. But, just, I mean, every scout I talked to, like if, if I had taken a survey, we've done, I guess, AFL surveys in the past. But if I had surveyed an actual survey of scouts, I think he would have been a landslide winner for, for the, the two weeks I was out Agreed. there. So, you know, he, he, he looked very, very good. Let me let me spring a little pipeline perspectives on you guys. Uh, story that we used to do where Jim and Jonathan would we'd pick a topic and these guys would square off and ferociously battle. Fisticuffs. Uh, often often resulting in fisticuffs. <laughs> um, let's do uh, NL Central player com- prospect comparison here. Two guys uh, who really stood out in the fall league. The league's most valuable player, Nelson Velazquez. And uh, one of the co-hitters of the year, Juan Yepes. Uh, would you would you both say uh, it, would you both take Velasquez if you're just looking at which of these players is going to be the better big league player? I would. Yeah. I, I just think. I mean, I think you could. They're, they're comparable, you know, offensive talents, but. Yepes is limited to first base, and I think Velasquez, you know, he's got a strong arm. He's more athletic. It's more base running value. Not that he's going to be a big base stealer and, and a better defender, you know, at a more difficult position. So, yeah, I would pretty easily on that one. Yeah, I, I would too. I think the argument for Yepes is, you know, maybe you could say that he's a sure bet to hit. Um, you know, Velasquez clearly made adjust, made some adjustments at the plate. Uh, to to allow him to uh, you know to perform as well as he did there and even during you know start of, started during the regular season uh, you know pitch recognition and selection uh, you know he talked a lot about you know really his ability uh, I think he's finally learning to trust himself where he knows you know so he can stay on the the fastball I, I think he was early in his career, so worried about being able to read a breaking ball that he was missing fastballs. Um, and one of the biggest things uh, that he, he, he noted his hitting coach in the fall league noted is that he, he's now staying on the fastball more and realizing that he, he is smart enough and quick enough to adjust to the breaking stuff. So, uh, you know, that's been the biggest thing, you know, see if that continues as he hits the upper levels in the, in the big leagues, you know, I think Yepes is going to hit, it's just, uh, you know, he's limited to first base or DH, uh, you know, at the next level. While I agree with Jim's assessment, Velasquez is a pretty good outfielder. Okay. Let's expand our look at uh, prospects in the fall league here. Jonathan's story ranking the top 25 prospects based on uh, 
future value plus their performance in the league. And then Jim uh, followed that up with a story on um, breakout prospects in the league. So these are guys who are not on Jonathan's list of the top 25 in the league. And Jim, as you noted, this was a season marked by a bunch of guys breaking out in the fall league, guys who are, were not necessarily very highly ranked. And we've talked about several of them uh, just moments ago in Velasquez, Owen White, uh, Juan Yepes. Um, so you also uh, did not include any of those players, anyone who was on Jonathan's list in this list, but you identified 10 more previously unheralded prospects who boosted their stock in the fall league. Yeah, I, and I looked at it as guys who were either on the bottom half of their t- organization top 30 lists that we put together were not on the list at all. So, you know, I didn't include the three guys you mentioned or Elijah Dunham, who was the breakout player of the year in the fall league, who's number 24 in the Yankees list. I, I figured why repeat, you know, we've already talked about how Velasquez and, and, and White and those guys broke out. But yeah, I came up with, with 10 guys. Um, I think four of them weren't even on top 30s who, who had really good falls um, you know, interesting, a couple more Cardinals, you know, Yepes, if I didn't exclude Yepes for being on Jonathan's list, the Cardinals would have had three of them because you had Yepes, you had, you had Brendan Donovan, who's kind of fringy defender, but plays all over the place, but he's hit, he's hit throughout his amateur career. I had him in my neck of the draft at, at South Alabama and guys were even talking about how he, he hit in high school. They liked his bat in high school. He's, you know, hit 300 with a 850 ops in the upper levels of the minors this year. And, and hit throughout the Arizona Fall League. He's got some gap power. He's got some base running savvy. I think he's going to be one of these offensive-minded utility types that will probably help the Cardinals in the near future. And then they had a pitcher, too, who who barely snuck on their list. I think he actually snuck on the Cardinals' list while the Fall League season was going on. I think they maybe when they lost Nick Plummer. Yeah, that's um, right. Um, Andre Palante, the Cardinals, is number 30. And he threw harder than I realized he did. I remember watching him pitch against Ryan Jensen, the Cubs, and I was slacking at you guys saying, man, Andre Palante's throwing 97. I didn't realize he threw 97. He's kind of sitting there. And then I think Will Bohr, who I, I snubbed a couple podcasts ago, so we'll give Will some love. Will saw him touch 99 later in the fall league, and he had a solid mid-80s slider, and he led the league starter starters in ERA. So, I mean, there's two more Cardinals for you. I think my – well, and we'll ask Jonathan this question too. If, if if I had to pick one of these ten players on my list, the guy I liked, I, I feel the best about. Uh, well, actually, you know, me being me, I'll have to mention two guys, and then I'll, <laughs> but Joey Weimer, Jonathan, you just and, set and, yourself and, up for your own question, and I know, and then I and I blew it, but but no, I didn't do that on purpose because I realized there were two guys I want to mention. But Joey Weimer didn't qualify for your list. I think we decided, yeah. right, Jonathan? Because he 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 had a bruised thumb. He only played nine games. He would have made it had he qualified, I think. Without question. I mean, not that it's performance-based, but he hit 467 in in nine games. But scouts, just like I was talking about how they were all talking about how good Moreno was, everybody's just kind of raving about the physicality of Joey Weimer, who 6'5", 215, it's huge raw power. He's at least a solid runner. Some would even go plus. He's got double-plus arm strength. He's really interesting, but he fascinates me. And then I, I do our Dodgers list. I like James Outman. I thought he was the best defensive outfielder I saw in the league. And you could go plus on his raw power, speed, and arm strength, and he had a he had a good AFL. So now I've 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 taken four players off the board there, Jonathan. But was there 
there anybody on my list who who particularly caught your eye? I, I feel like I know who you're going to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there is a there is a guy who uh, I happened to end up seeing throw multiple times. Um, Coleman Crow, the Angels. His whole sort of profile interests me because uh, you know he's not on the Angels top thirty. I do that list. Uh, I can guarantee you he will be on the Angels top thirty next year uh, somewhere. Uh, but you know, he was a late round guy, 28th round, uh, out of high school in 2019. Yeah. They went above slot, but it wasn't anything crazy. 317 and a half thousand dollars. Um, so his pro debut was this year, uh, youngest pitcher in the fall league. You know, he's not the biggest guy in the world, but, uh, you know, I think his stuff is going to play, uh, you know, He's got a good sinking fastball. It sits in the low 90s. He can reach back for a little bit more now and again. Uh, he's got a very good changeup uh, and, a, and a good breaking ball, good field to spin. Uh, you know, his overall numbers were really good. You know, he hit a 20 to 2 strikeout to walk ratio in 17 innings. Uh, you know, the one mistake I saw him make, you know, was, you know, he pitched in the game to, you know, that. <laughs> It was the the game that helped surprise move closer to being able to get to the championship game. I guess is the best way to put it. Um, and he he matched up, uh, or was that the game that did get them to the championship game? I'm, I'm conflating which games it was. He gave up a homer to Austin Wells, and uh, only because he threw his changeup so much and liked to throw it early in counts, and two of the two of the surprise coaches sort of told Wells, like, you're going to get a first pitch changeup. And he did, and he crushed it. And that was really the only mistake I saw him make, you know, uh, in, in the times I saw him on the mound, he's, you know, completely fearless for a guy who was making a, a large leap against very good competition. Uh, you talked about the hitter friendly aspect of the league. Here's a guy who, you know, <clears throat> has barely pitched. He's super young. Uh, you know, he's, he's interesting to me. Uh, and I just like the way he competed, uh, competed on the mound and, uh, yeah. So I, I think that, uh, he is a guy to sort of keep, a to keep an eye on. It may be a limited ceiling, but you know, has a chance to be really good. I wonder if they'll do, you know, as he continues to develop, if they'll try to switch him to a four seamer to play off the depth of the curveball. you know, something would carry up in the strike zone to play off the curveball and change up. And if that can make him, you know, obviously he'd throw a four-seamer a little bit harder. Um, and I wonder if that might be a good pitch for him to play off the changeup and curveball. It'd be kind of interesting to see down the road. Yeah, no, I agree. And he has he has aptitude, right? He's got a good yeah. field to pitch. And, you know, he can spin I the think ball. That, that will serve him well. A high school draftee making his pro debut and then pitching in the fall league in the year of his pro debut, I'm, I'm going to guess that has not happened often in the fall league. Right. And they I usually would, don't have I a full year off because of yeah. COVID. So it, it, I, I will bet there's never been a high school pitcher who's made his pro debut in the fall league. Yeah, I would not think so. Uh, Jason, I'll look up the electoral votes of our draft yeah, states I'll, and I'll, I'll let you research out. high school pitchers debuting in the fall league. I'll take the next week to figure that out. All right. We are going to take a break. When we come back, we'll dip into the mailbag. That's coming up next on the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. 
From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. We're going to wrap up here by answering a question from the mailbag. Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo will do the honors of answering this question from Alan Chang. Alan says, if Casas, being Tristan, wasn't a first baseman, would he be a top 10 prospect? Guys, have at it. Well, why don't we start, Jason, with what your initial question was uh, when we were discussing this before we started recording. I said, well, I guess that would depend on which position he played and how well he played it. I mean, if, you know, if Tristan Casas was a, uh, you know, 80 grade center fielder, (laughs) Uh, in addition to the rest of his profile, then yes, he would be uh, probably the number one overall prospect. But But, but I guess we're assuming he has his current size and tools. Like we're not giving him plus speed. Like if he, I mean, the alternative would be, and he broke into the pro ball at this position and played there very briefly, it would be third base. Um, And I think if you had him at third base, I mean, he's big, you know, you know, he's a, he's a pretty good athlete. He's actually a good first baseman, which I think actually helps enhance his prospect status to some extent. It's not just, hey, you know, this is a guy who's got tremendous power and a great approach at the plate, but he's just a, uh, you know, a lump and we're throwing him at first base because that's where we have to stick him. He's a good first baseman, so that adds to his value. I think if he was at third base, he'd be, you know, he's reasonably athletic. He's actually got a strong arm. I think he'd be a fringy third baseman. I, you know, I mean, I think the best comp, and we, we talked about this guy briefly, like, I think you could argue he might be a comparable third baseman to Brett Beatty. Maybe not quite as good, but comparable, you know, who was also in the fall league. But I actually, so for me, I, I don't think if he played a different position, I, I don't think he'd really rank any higher because he's a good first baseman. Th- that would be my conclusion. Yeah, I, I won't. I don't think so. You know, the one guy that I thought of in terms of sort of comparing and contrasting is Spencer Torkelson, um, you know, who is playing third base, but, you know, is, is graded out much higher in the hit and power tools. Um, you know, I think that Casas, you know, showed some things in the fall league in terms of the approach and things like that, like he's going to hit, um, so, and it's, you know, he's, he was, what, he's 18th now in the top 100. He's not that far off, um, you know, but I think that if the, the offensive profile, you know, were a little higher, you know, it, it's not like we can't have a first baseman in the, you know, in, in the top 10, but they have to be a very, very special offensive player. And you know, he, he may end up being that, you know, I don't think it would shock me if he outperformed the, you know, I think we have 55 hit and 60 power on him. You know, could he be better than that? You know, maybe and play a good first base. Then, you know, we could look back and say, well, maybe because of that, he should have been in the in the top 10. Um, but I think the the defensive limitation adds a little bit to it. Um, and that's why, you know, if you why we have, uh, you know, we have Torkelson with the potential to play third and the higher offensive profile. Um, is, is why he's at four, you know, and, and, 
and Costas is at, at 18. So, uh, you know, I think Beatty's probably, be, you know, Beatty looked pretty good at third when I saw him in the fall league gym. You know, I, I think he, he showed people that he can stay there. So, um, you know, maybe they'd be comparable, but we have Costas ahead of Beatty in the top 100 anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think Beatty could be an average third baseman and, and like with Torkelson too, if Torkelson or DH, we'd probably still rank him where we ranked him because of his bat. Like, so, um, you know, and it's, you know, I, I think now looking at it, the other argument, like if he was the similar offensive profile at a much more difficult position, like he played somewhere up the middle, then yeah, I think that would be an easier call. Um, you know, in a world where let's say he's, I don't know, center fielder or something. Um, yeah, he would, but he, he's pretty good. And I think too, you could make an argument. You could rank him in the top 10 right now. I think you, you could make that argument. I mean, I wouldn't quite go there, but like you said, Jonathan, he's not that far off. And if you wanted to argue, you know, Hey, like combination of, of bat and power and he plays, you know, pretty good defense and he's got a good approach and he's proven more than some of the super young guys in the top 10. Sure, you could argue that. Yeah, I mean, you know, like the the grades are similar offensively uh, to Francisco Alvarez, who's number ten, the the Mets catcher, but he can catch, right? Uh, And he's and he and he, you know, he has a chance to be a good catcher, Um, but the hit and power are graded out the same. Um, So you know, there's another, you know, if if Tristan Cassis were behind the plate. Um, he'd be a really big catcher, but uh, you know that you know I think that might be a, a similar thing, knowing that Alvarez has a 60 arm and 55 field grade, you know, so that that sets him apart even more. Um, but that would you know I you know agree I think we're making the same point in different ways, but uh, you know that uh, that does figure into it for sure. Thanks very much, Alan Chang, for that question. And that is going to be a wrap for this week's MLB Pipeline podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week. When we can't.